Welcome, podcast listeners. It's the fifth day of the podcast takeover. I'm Trisha Johnson. This week, I'm on the ground at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado, where leaders from across the globe are gathered. The festival is a program of the Aspen Institute that brings together the most inspired and innovative thinkers, writers, artists, business people, teachers, and others. The idea is to dive deep into a world of ideas, thought, and discussion, and spark positive change. Already, we've heard illuminating thoughts and discussion. Pete Dominic is the host of Stand Up with Pete Dominic on Sirius XM. He was the resident opener on The Colbert Report and the backup comedian for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. He began his career as a stand-up comic. In this episode, Dominic will interview other festival presenters. Here are their conversations. Hi, you're listening to Aspen Ideas to Go, a great podcast that I, Pete Dominic, have hijacked, at least for one episode. We're here at the Aspen Ideas Festival in beautiful Aspen, Colorado, and my guest is a really, really interesting guy. I've read his book, I've interviewed him on my SiriusXM radio show, and he was just here signing books at the Aspen Ideas Fest, and all of the books sold out in about 10 minutes. He is a distinguished visiting fellow at Johns Hopkins University. His book is The Industries of the Future. I wonder what it's about. Uh, Also, he worked for the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, during the Obama administration, and a whole bunch of other amazing things. But let's get to our conversation with Alec Alec Ross. Alec, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Pete. Have you been to Aspen in the summer before? I have. It's pretty freaking beautiful. It's rough, right? Oh, my gosh. Have Have you found yourself complaining about anything no because I've i have and i then i stop i realize I've just got a little glazed smile going. yeah it's a, this is a beautiful Does the place to be glazed smile have anything to do with the legalization of marijuana here uh <laughs> is there anything you'd like to reveal alec to the aspen ideas to go podcast listeners not at this point uh congratulations on the success of your book Thanks uh so much, it's a new york times bestseller and it is still you know uh, really relevant really popular and obviously it's not about the history it's about the future well, of industry. You know, I, th- I think that if you, I, I don't care where you are in the world right now. Uh, I think that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of concern about our economic future. People just don't know what the future is going to bring, and the industries of the future tries to light a little path about the road forward. And obviously, uh, it depends on who is translating the industries of the future to us in terms of whether or not you're more optimistic or pessimistic and you have a little of both uh you use the word dark from time to time but you also use the word hope from time to time as well let's which one do you want to start with well you know look most people who write books about the future it's either utopian or dystopian it's either oh we're gonna live to be 150 years old happy healthy wealthy and lack lacking for nothing or it's sort of eyes closed fists clenched bedwetting dystopianism. <laughs> and I think life's a little bit more up the middle. I mean, I think that all of these changes in science and technology and the economy are going to contribute to both the promise and peril of the future. I'm a li- I'm, I'm more optimistic than pessimistic, but I'm well short of utopia. But real quick, uh, we're mostly talking about the technologies of the future, but, w- but ha- what about the politics of the future? I just want to touch on it for just one question, Alec Ross. You yeah. know who the nominee is for the Republican Party, Voldemort. What do you, what do you think of the future of politics, the future of the two-party system in the United States of America? Well, I think things are in a pretty ugly spot right now. I think the right is going way far to the right. I think the left is going way far to the left. I think that, you know, the uh, very idea of moderation, compromise, and lawmaking. Pragmatism. It, oh, my gosh. It's just, it's, it's really been shuttered to the quarters. I mean, look, I have, a, I have pretty strong views on this. I think that Hillary is, is a very capable candidate and would be a very capable president. And I think that 
Donald Trump is vulgar, demented, and poses an existential threat to America's uh, economic future and our, and our, and our security. So I, f I feel really strongly about that. One of the things I find so interesting, and you having worked for uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, is how complex the State Department is. I don't know anything about how it works and uh, what it does, but I know a little bit. And I know I know more than Donald Trump, but he doesn't know what the State Department does or what the job of Secretary of State is. Does that, is that something that concerns you when someone doesn't know anything about how government works, much less you know, a piece of government as large as the State Department? Well, it, it concerns me that somebody who is so proudly anti-intellectual and who doesn't care at all about facts, the idea that he would suddenly be in charge of our multi-trillion dollar budget, the fact that he would have the world's largest and mo most powerful military at his disposal, it scares the hell out of me. Yeah, no, this is a stone in my shoe. I think about it with every step I take, the prospect <laughs> of him as commander-in-chief. He's a horrible human being, and he would be a horrible president. How do you feel about Donald Trump? Alec Ross is our guest here uh, at the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast. My name is Pete Dominic, and I'm really excited to be talking to you again. When I talked to you, when I read your book, uh, preparing to interview you the first time on my SiriusXM radio show, I was so interested and fascinated about these things. They're so hard to predict unless you're inside of them and you know a little bit about them. But let's get from the dystopian political future, potentially, to a more utopian issue in terms of medicine, the future of medicine, specifically uh, the future of the way that we can alter, not we, I won't be doing this, uh, genetic code. That is much different than even the coolest medical technologies and practices of today, I think. Now, you know, I think that the, the world's last trillion dollar industry was created out of computer code. The world's next trillion dollar industry is going to be created out of genetic code. We're finally, we're now about 15 years past the mapping of the human genome, and we're finally at the point where the economics and the science are lining up such that we can develop <laughs> real precision medicines. Right now, you know, the personalization of medicine right now is if you're fat, you get one dosage of a medicine, right. and if you're skinny, you get another. Uh, the kinds of things that are in development right now will enable us to develop pharmaceuticals that map the specific genetics of who we are and the specific genetics of our ailment. Similarly, in diagnostics, I mean, the technology's now been developed where taking a vial of blood, you can detect cancerous cells at 1 100th the size of what can be detected by an MRI. This is going to make, this is not going to cure cancer, but it's going to make cancer much, much, much less fatal. And so this is going to add years of our, years to our life, Pete. And, it's a big deal. and you and I are around the same age. I know you have uh, three kids around the age of my two daughters who are 11 and 8. Let's talk about their future, Alec, uh, in terms of that one, genetic uh, code. Uh, I mean, what, what, are we, what do you hope for them in terms of their own health? Well, what I hope for them is that... What will their will be like? When they, so first of all, I hope that they will be able to get diagnostics such that you know illnesses that otherwise would kill them will be identified very early and will be cured. The second thing is that I hope that the pharmaceuticals that are developed for them uh, will, will really map to who they are and that th this will help them live longer. I do worry a little bit about gene altering technology. Right. You know, the ethics of it? Well, I, the ethics of it, but also what the secondary and tertiary effects of it may be. So look, I'm all in favor of intervening at the cellular level when a child is still an embryo. And we've determined that, hey, there's a 15% chance that based on the genetic makeup, this child still in utero will get Parkinson's. If you can make an intervention to reduce the likelihood of a kid that hasn't yet been born from 15% to 2%, I'm all for it. But what I worry about is 
if you say, oh, well, my son's supposed to have brown eyes, I kind of wish he'd rather have, uh, it'd be better if he had blue eyes. Oh, he's supposed to be five foot six. Can't we intervene to make him, you know, six one, six two? These kinds of supposed things. Supposed to be bald, could give him hair. Now, let's be honest well, about what we really want. <laughs> that's right. There you go, Pete. <laughs> and so I do worry about what happens when we start creating designer right. babies. I'm all, fa I'm all in favor of keeping illness at bay and helping people live longer lives, but designer babies freak me out a little bit. Uh, as they should, and the people who want them should probably try to limit those ambitions already. You know who you are out there. Now, Alec, what about our, our kids lives. What are their lifestyles going to be like? My daughter is 11. Um, that means she'll get her driver's permit in, in about four years. I don't think about the future. I'm a mindfulness guy. But uh, if I do for a minute, for the sake of this interview, will she ever drive her own car? She will. Uh, I have an 11-year-old. <laughs> yeah, right. I have an 11-year-old daughter as well. And as much as I would like for her to not drive her own car, I think that she will. However, I think that after she graduates from college, okay. she won't. All right. So, I, you know, if she's 11 now, I bet 22, 23, 24, I bet she won't be driving her own car. How will she communicate? Will that change the way that we communicate? Uh, I, we just started a family chat. Mm -hmm. I love it. My wife, my 8-year-old and 11-year-old, we all can text each other when we're in different places like we are away from them now. It's a really fun way, uh, I think, to actually build the bond of our family. So I'm pro a lot of this future socialization for the most part uh, but what is the future of socialization for our kids as they become young professionals well, I or I, I didn't mean to be ambitious about my daughter's future she can do whatever she wants sweetheart you're being very mindful Pete thank you um, I do look I think that nothing substitutes for you know face-to-face -face real connection between people I don't think you just want to turn that into zeros and ones right but let me throw a, a technology out that I think is going to be in place in the future which I do think is going to have huge social implications and I do write about this in the industries of the future I think that we are. I think that we aren't far from the babblefish. I mean, I actually believe that based on the developments in bioacoustic engineering, based on machine learning and analytics, I imagine somebody being speaking to me in one of the 800 languages yeah. spoken in Papua New Guinea, yeah. and literally at the speed of sound. Uh, what they are saying will be translated into the language that I want to hear. I have a hard time. I have a hard time understanding the implications of that. That's a good thing, right? Yeah, I think it's a very good thing. Um, and you know, it it won't just it won't be Siri's voice in our ear. It'll measure. Thank it'll, it'll measure the frequency, wavelength, sound intensity, and other properties of the voice, and it'll be the actual approximation of the voice of the person speaking, but speaking a language that I understand. And what I think this is going to do is it's going to take very disconnected, isolated parts of the globe and help. And, and help connect it. I'm looking forward to that and however many years that is um, uh, going back long after Trump failed and just as a practical joke to make the voice in your ear Trump's. Oh boy. That'll be my form of torture. <laughs> as, long as, as long as he as long as he's not ex-President Trump I think I, I'll be able to stand it. The biggest concern in terms of national security seems to be uh, uh, cyber security in many ways. The weaponization of code. Uh, I've heard you talk about the barrier of entry that there is to nuclear weapons. It's really hard if you're a bad person or uh, a state to get uranium 
It's hard right. to get uranium, but right. it's. I feel like we're going to have little bugs flying around that are going to listen to all of our conversations and potentially poke us with a terrible poison. Talk me down, Alec Ross. So I'm not going to talk you down because oh, I no. actually have. I, this is where I get a little dark. Yeah, I think the weaponization of code is the most significant development in conflict since the weaponization of fissile material. And here's here's why. And one reason why it's especially scary is like instead of like a bullet or a hand grenade, <laughs> once you've shot a bullet, you can't reshoot that bullet. Once you've pulled the pin on a hand grenade and thrown it and it exploded, it's, it's only good for one use. But with malware, once you shoot malware, once you release... Uh, you, um, it's more like a virus. It keeps it hitting is. and hurting. And it can be repurposed. So something that could be developed by the world's most sophisticated computer scientists can be captured and repurposed by people with significantly less sophistication. But can't we also build defenses against it? Well, we are building defenses against it. But the very simple fact of the matter is, it, over the next four years, we're going from a world of 16 billion internet-connected devices to 40 billion internet-connected devices. This is good. I mean, this is going to help us live happier, healthier, wealthier lives. But we can't, you know, you, you can't ignore the fact that the as we go from 16 billion to 40 billion connected devices, the security threats are going to increase correspondingly. I just, I've spent too much time in this charmless little windowless room called the White House Situation Room and seeing what we've missed to know that we're not always going to, we're, we're not always going to avert the worst of cyber conflict. Uh, Lastly, I got to talk to you about the future of economics, the future economy, and we talked about this before, and I think it's one of the most fascinating issues of conversation. Uh, are there going to be any jobs left? We're debating now more than ever a guaranteed income for people because we're all being replaced by robots. Drivers are being replaced. There's millions of truck drivers concerned about this. And if you talk to economists, they're really split. Uh, I don't know who to believe. I usually, because I'm a big dum-dum, uh, believe the last smartest person I talk to on mm -hmm. this or many other issues. But what is your take on the future of economics? Is Look, everybody going to have a job? Are we going to be okay? Or are robots going to be doing everything? We're going to be okay. Uh, <sighs> you know, look, uh, we're going to be okay. There is zero precedent in the history of humanity for technological innovation creating long-term displacement of labor. So, you know, in 1870, one out of every two people in the United States worked in agriculture. And with the mechanization of agriculture, this was a bigger deal, bluntly, than the rise of AI and the robots. The mechanization of agriculture did more to displace labor than anything in the past. And everybody said, oh, look, these people have spent hundreds of years working on farms. They can't do anything else. Guess what? They did. You know, there has been Luddism that has accompanied all technological progress over hundreds of years. It is reasserting itself But isn't now. this time different? There are aspects of When it robots can create other jobs, other industries, other solutions for problems. You know, they, look, there is going to be significant displacement. And as we know, humans are not as easy to upgrade as software. Uh, and That's so, for sure. So I'm, That's what my who, wife says. You're right. You know who I'm more worried about I'm, than our kids? I'm worried about the guy who's 53 years old who for the previous 30 years had been driving a truck right. and his truck suddenly goes driverless. Right. I'm more worried about the people who are going to be in their 40s, 50s, and 60s who can't adapt than I am for our kids who I do believe will grow up in a world where their labor and their education will adapt to the changing world. 
I'm worried about middle class, you know, sort of middle working class, right. middle age folks who still need incomes and aren't adaptable. And I cannot take an optimistic view toward them. Well, I hope you're right about many things. I hope you're wrong about other things. But if you liked our conversation, you'll definitely love Alex's book, The Industries of the Future. And you, you maybe like my radio show in Sirius XM. Thank you to the Aspen Ideas Festival for letting us take over the Aspen Ideas to go podcast. And Alec, uh, follow him on Twitter at Alec J. Ross. And I'm at Pete Dominic. Thanks, Alec, for sitting down with me. Really interesting as always. Thanks, Pete. I appreciate it. I'm Eric Kleinenberg. I am a sociology professor at NYU uh, and a co-author with Aziz Ansari of a book called Modern Romance. Uh, today, I am talking about uh, technology's impact on intimacy. Uh, does carrying a smartphone everywhere we go make it more difficult for us to get deep with another person, or does it actually make it easier for us to build deep connections? Uh, and then in a few hours, I'm going to talk about uh, the rising status of women in the world and the way that's affected relationships. Uh, smartphones uh, that we carry with us everywhere, uh, they do everything in its opposite. Uh, it, we live our lives through machines these days. The average American spends about eight hours in front of a screen, and so they have all kinds of impact. Uh, they can definitely be distracting, and they can keep us uh, out of intimate situations. Uh, because if you're a single person, if you're a married person, if you're carrying a, a phone in your pocket, you really have uh, a 24-7 singles bar with you all the time. You also have access to all kinds of new information, uh, things that could be funny and surprising and exciting or maybe even erotic uh, that are going to distract you and pull you out of the person, the, 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 the people you're engaging with at any, at any moment. And so that can be very difficult. Uh, at the same time, uh, social media and new technologies can help us build all kinds of relationships that would have been impossible before. Uh, the Internet's the main way people in the U.S. find their spouses these days. Uh, and so there's all kinds of conversations that we're having precisely because of the technology. It really goes both ways. Welcome to the Aspen Ideas To Go podcast. My name is Pete Dominic, and I am hijacking this thing again. I host a radio show on SiriusXM, but when I'm here at Aspen Ideas, I love to steal their podcast and find the smartest, best people I can and interview them. And I'm really, really excited because I'm sitting next to one of my favorite of all time people on the radio and probably off the radio too. She's a Peabody Award-winning journalist who leads the Race Card Project. If you don't know what the Race Card Project are, is, you hate America. Look it up. Get involved. All right? It's an initiative to foster a wider conversation about race and cultural identity in America. And, of course, she's a big radio star. She was the host of NPR's All Things Considered, uh, where she interviewed everybody from world leaders, America presidents, you name it. Michelle Norris is sitting next to me. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Pete. How Good are to be you? back with you. It's great to have you here and, uh, and, and Aspen. And this year you brought your daughter? I did. How's that going? It's great. You know, she comes almost every year. She volunteers. Oh, yeah? She does try to fill her head with big ideas while she's here. Does she want to grow up to be mom, or is there is there a lot of pressure being Michelle Norris's daughter? Does she, I think no? there's no pressure at all. But you know, we could get deep in existential because we all, in some ways, sort of become our mothers. You can fight it, but it kind of happens. Let's, but that's another conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's have let's do that podcast another time. Um, well. There's so much that we can talk with you about, but let's talk about what you're doing here at Aspen Ideas 2016. Um, 
you've been on obviously a bunch of panels, but I wanted to start with the whole Trump conversation that you were involved with. I know you had sent out a tweet saying, we need a lot more than just one hour. Tell us who was on this panel and what this conversation was about. We did a great panel last night. It was a simple question, why Trump? How this happened, what set the stage for it politically, what was in his mind when he decided to jump into this. You know, remember he started this as an, someone who was seen as unelectable, someone who was seen as somewhat unlikable, thunder. Was he on the right? Was he on the left? Where was he coming in from? And he's going into Cleveland as the presumptive nominee. So we had Mike Allen, chief political correspondent for Politico. We had Molly Ball, writer for The Atlantic. We had Matt um, Kibbe who ran the Rand Paul pack. Um, and we had Dan McAdams, who wrote that great piece in The Atlantic that tried to get inside of Don, uh, Donald Trump's oh, brain. Yeah. I had him on, yeah, the psychologist, yeah, the psychologist. psychiatrist. I had him on, yeah, great. And, uh, and E.J. Dion. Oh, wow. Oh, and E.J. Dion. Yeah. What a panel. So, but all the experts have been wrong, but it's about, about that was always the, the about the primaries. I think conventional wisdom is going to apply a little bit more in the general election, but here's the question. Okay, push back on that. How dare you, Michelle? Uh, no, 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 but I'm not going no, no, no. ask the question. I'm ju- the, the question is, anybody on that brilliant panel of political analysts say there's any chance he's not going to be the nominee at this point? No one said that. Okay. No one said okay. that. But there are a, th- a few things that, that were said about what we can yeah, expect go going forward. So um, there will likely be a third-party candidate of some significance. We always knew that there would be other candidates, but we heard Mitt Romney here in the Big Tent say when he goes into the booth, well known that he's not going to vote for Donald Trump, but he's looking for a third party, party a candidate that he can back because he just can't get behind Trump. Conventional wisdom about what happens going into the next stage of a campaign. Usually the lever shift, people shift into a different gear when they become the presumptive nominee. Their rhetoric changes, their ground game changes. They start to sound perhaps a bit more presidential. No one is expecting that from Donald Trump. Right. Um, no one is expecting him to take off the gloves when he starts talking about Hillary Clinton. He's already been very pugilistic. That's probably going to continue. Um, and so this is not a campaign that people can make easy predictions about. And if anything, everybody on the panel admitted that. Like, they're not in the business of making any kind of predictions about this candidate because all bets are off. But this convention is going to be unconventional, and we're going to be in Cleveland. Uh, was there talk about what might happen there and who's going to be there? He, he's, he understands one, the most important thing, Donald Trump, which is to be entertaining, to be entertaining. And, you know, so far we've got confirmed uh, one convicted rapist, Mike Tyson, and he's going. He's going to be there. That's the first name we hear, which is wild. A lot of people, Republican leaderships, aren't going. They've said, I'm not going. Sponsors have pulled out of the RNC, which, of course, is unprecedented. What do you think that convention is going to be like? Did you talk about that at the panel we at all? only a little bit about that. But, you know, we don't know. We don't know. Um, some of the people who have been invited, Mike Dicka is now saying he wasn't officially invited, so it's not sure if the former Chicago Bears coach is going to show up or not. Uh, it's not clear that Donald Trump is going to wait until the last day, as nominees normally do. There's a lot of buildup. You hear a lot of other um, candidates, not candidates, excuse me, you hear a lot of other politicians, party supporters, who give big speeches in the lead-up to the last night. And that's finally when, in a shower of balloons and confetti, you finally hear from the nominee. Donald Trump is talking about beaming himself in almost every night from different locations because, yes, he's a showman, and he understands that he's the show. So that's what people are going to be showing up to watch. I'm fine with it. Bring as much attention as you can to him to just keep exposing him for exactly who he is, which is important. But 
Yesterday, uh, Donald Trump talked about how he's going to win the black youth vote. I'm going to be tremendous for the black youth. I'm gonna, they're going to vote for me. They want jobs, he says. 94% of black people in a recent poll disapprove of Donald Trump. Six out of 100 black people. Let's talk about Hispanic vote. I mean, the minority vote has been more and more important every election. I mean, I, I think it's going to be a landslide, and I know people don't like to say that in the microphones, but I don't mind, because the white vote doesn't matter nearly as much as it even did, in my mind, in 2012. Am I wrong, Michelle? I'm not going to say the white vote doesn't matter. As um, much. It, 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 Less it, than it did it, last it, time. Well, it, the, the demographics of the country are changing. Voting patterns are changing. The truest thing that he said in that statement is, young black people want jobs. That, you know, if you were doing a political check, that would be one true statement that he said. I, you know, people can get well, behind that. Well, that's like that. saying. But <laughs> are they going to show up and vote for him? Probably not. Are they going to show up and vote? Question mark on that. Black voters have been reliably Democratic um, and reliably consistent voters for the Democratic Party. I will not say that the white vote is um, irrelevant. Uh, the white vote is is still quite relevant in terms of electoral college, in terms of electoral votes. It's also relevant in terms of what it has said to us as a nation this year. Donald Trump's candidacy has surfaced something that merits our attention. It has surfaced a level of anger and and a, a deep feeling of, of disenfranchisement. It has surfaced something that we have to pay attention to. And the white vote is probably relevant in another another way. The polls, there's suggestion that the polls in this election are somewhat squishy. That if people, and I'll give you an example, we did talk about this last night, that there is a suggestion that the polls might be slightly unreliable in that people, that there's a broader base of support for Donald Trump than the polls indicate because people don't want to tell a real person that they're supporting Donald Trump. They're too ashamed to say, yeah, I'm voting for Donald Trump. If, they take, if a poll is taken and it is done online and all you have to do is click a box, the numbers for Donald Trump are always much higher than if it's a traditional poll where someone calls you and asks you who, who you're going to actually support. People don't want to admit. So it's almost like the converse of the how, Doug Wilder effect. But how much percentage of a vote could it be? How many people really aren't being honest that it could actually well, affect the outcome? In tight elections, things are often determined around the margins. The thing, the thing that's really frustrated me... I'm not saying he can win. Right, not, right, not, right. You know, I'm not saying he can win, but I'm just saying I don't go yeah. all the way with you in saying that the white vote is... is Fair enough. You're right. You're right. But uh, I didn't mean to frame it that way, but I'm just saying the, 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 the minority vote is, is mattering so much more even this year than it did four years ago. And there's so many more registered Hispanic votes, like 17 voters, like 70 percent more this time around than even uh, four years ago. But... Yeah, do you mind? Do you mind? I, you know what? A, this is my stolen <laughs> podcast, Michelle Norris. You're my treasured guest. I guess I you could add one more thing. So much. Bring it. <laughs> the other reason that the white vote is, is relevant, I think, this year is demonstrated on the Democratic side as well. Mm-hmm. There's a big question mark. Voters who showed up and who were passionate about Bernie Sanders' candidacy, where are they going to go on Election Day? Um, not all of them are white, but a large percentage of them are. Mm-hmm. A large percentage of them are, percentage of them are young. They were passionate. They were fired up yeah. about Bernie Sanders. Where will they go on election day? And that's another example of the relevancy of of the well, white vote. Well, if she picks Elizabeth Warren, I feel like that shores it up. I don't know if she does, but if she does, he's she might as well be just as progressive and similar on the issues, especially on the uh, financial. The coziness of her of Hillary's relationship with the financial industry, Elizabeth Warren certainly helps assuage the concern of over that. I would imagine, but 
You know, the thing that really frustrates me, Michelle Norris, is that so much of, of what Trump believes, if you take him at his word, is based in conspiracy theory. He doesn't believe he started getting popular in politics because he was the leading birther. President Obama's not born here. Climate change is a hoax created by the Chinese. Vaccines cause autism. That's attributed to a lot of his popularity. But I would argue it's also attributed to a lot of the hatred for Hillary Clinton now and always. A lot of people believe things about Hillary Clinton that aren't true either, including all of the Benghazi stuff. A lot of conspiracies they believe that he does, and they believe a lot of conspiracies about Hillary. I feel like that's hurt her. What is it about Hillary Clinton that she can't maybe seem to get traction and inspire people and, and get favorable favorability ratings? Why does she have such a low approval rating? Her numbers are ticking up. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of things within that question. One is, you know, the the enthusiasm around her candidacy, the conspiracy theories that she's, the headwinds that she's faced in that, you know, going back to when her husband was president. Um, those are, are things that she's she's always had to face. But you're talking about Donald Trump's belief system. You know, it's hard to figure out exactly what he believes. I mean, he says a lot of things. He backtracks. Um, you know, the, the, his belief system is the facts that he's, that he, if, if you, I don't even, I, the word fact is not something that we should probably use. The, the, the things that he says, the words that he strings together, you know, in, they're very elastic in terms of, you know, That's believability. Great, word. great <laughs> word. I'm stealing that. Every time I talk, very elastic, his ideas. Elastic in, in that they stretch from one hour to the next and then maybe the next day and then they snap back. Yeah, it's it's a really hard thing to analyze to know what he thinks. I almost miss, I do miss that policy argument that we had, you know, but fundamental policy ideas because you don't know what he believes. You can't be guided by, you can't be seduced by logic and you can't be guided by, you know, a traditional system of facts and beliefs. And we were talking about what you can expect going forward. Again, if you look at a traditional calendar, I know that all bets are off, but that is sort of the paradigm from yeah. through which we talk about politics. If you look at a traditional calendar, right now is when you would start to get a look at the scaffolding of a particular campaign. You'd have a sense of what their platform is, what would, you know, what, what their doctrine would look like, who their cabinet, you know, who would occupy their cabinet, who they would rely on, and you know, in terms of getting advice and guidance, do we know any of that? I think mostly Gary Busey and other reality show stars and actors and celebrities that'll help gain attention. Because, I mean, everybody knows this is about Donald Trump and about becoming more famous for him and his brand. That is one thing for sure. But one thing that's troubled me so much, Michelle Norris, and I saw the statistic last week, and I want to believe it's somewhat inaccurate. I don't know how we get past this. They don't know how we disprove this, but you talked about that kind of disenfranchised voter. A lot of this comes down to race. It always has. Let's not let's be, not pretend it hasn't. And this statistic was about half of Americans believe that black folks actually have it better than them. They believe the issue is reverse racism. It's black folks that have the advantages now. Uh, and Donald Trump back in 1989 said an educated black black man has a better shot than an educated white man. That was in the late 80s that he said that. But the point is, if we have so many white Americans that believe that they're the ones that have been disenfranchised and aggrieved in terms of opportunity, how does that ever change? How do you change people's minds on that? How important is that idea, that statistic? That, that is a big, deep, existential Everest mountain of a question because you know one of the things that we heard John Kerry talk about is a definition of politics as being a reaction to perceived need and the the important statement there is perceived need so whether or not it's true or not the fact that a lot of people believe 
that black Americans have it easier. There are all kinds of statistics that refute this, that a, a black person who has a college education has a much harder time getting a mortgage than a white person with a high school education. I, mean, I, don't, all kinds I don't believe of, it. It's, I don't believe it. Enough okay, with your statistics. You, whether you believe it or not, that doesn't matter because you believe it. Right, exactly. And, and that is demonstrated right. in, um, in, in a, a belief system that is driving politics today. So it, it's not a matter of informing people in, um, in a traditional electoral cycle. It's harder to do this through journalism. It's harder to do it through literature or culture um, because people are, are often absorbing those things in sort of little snippets. It's, this, this makes it really, really difficult to sort of chip away at that. And that's created sort of alternative you know, alternative reality. What is it about me that I, you know, understand, and so many other white folks I know understand that that is a ridiculous notion to believe that we somehow don't have it, that we we somehow don't have it uh, as as bad as black folks. I mean, I, I I don't know what was about my upbringing. I don't know what was about just my openness to diversity. But what is it about someone's life that makes them think a white man that makes them think? You know, it's it's us. It's we're the ones who's got it tough. I mean. I'm, I'm not to pretend to you know analyze a voter or pretend like I know the answers. Yeah. I know that it, it's a big, complicated stew, and there are a lot of ingredients in it. Yeah. Yeah. That um, that you know our history. A lot of people in America don't really understand our history. They don't understand that the, that the, the vestiges of a system in America that was based on slavery and plunder and 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 um, the diminution of people of color exists today. So they don't understand that it starts there. They they that it's not just about race. That it's often never just about race. That it's also about class. That it's about economic tumults. It's about people feeling that the economy is is not necessarily working for them. And they're, you know, and 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 in that sense, that's not crazy. You know, the manufacturing sector is not experiencing a good deal of growth. There are people who are working just as hard, and there's no room for growth in terms of their salaries. There's their they're working hard to just hold on to the middle class. There are all kinds of people who, you know, there's an argument made, the Ann Sund argument. So many people who work on the crafts, they would hope to create, you know, whether you're an electrician or a plumber or a carpenter, the idea, Pete, is that you would you would start your business and that your sons and maybe even your daughters too would come along and it would be Dominic and Sons. And you'd, ha- you'd paint that on a big white van and you'd live a life, middle class life. And the Ann Sons don't expect to live as well as their parents did. And whether that's true or not, they feel that. And trying to, trying to mitigate or litigate against something that people feel is really difficult to do, but it's really easy to exploit. By the way, now it's probably a good time for my live read. Dominic and Sons Landscaping. <laughs> you want your lawn to be greener? Dominic and Sons. I don't have any sons, two daughters, and I can't fix anything. All right, final well, question. You, you, know what makes the, you know what makes the grass go greener? Uh, Colorado mountain yes. air. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, my final question is is for you, and I and I love Michelle Norris. And if you're listening to this, I hope that you'll look. And you're not familiar with her. Look up everything about her career. Listen to her old interviews, and uh, and, and read everything you can about the race card. Um, your take on the media. Uh, how do you think that we, the media, everybody's the media now. If you have a Twitter account, I suppose, has handled um, this election cycle. A lot of people say the media created Donald Trump, and you know there's an argument to be made for that. CNN just signed Corey Lewandowski, which has been roundly criticized, including from many of my former colleagues at CNN. But 
how have how have we handled this campaign cycle? Every time around, there's new media, there's new social media, obviously. That, uh, but of course, we've got traditional radio and television and print. How do you think we're doing? We write the first draft of history. We, and again, we can use that term elastic because yeah. you know media is just it's yeah. not just you know the traditional print media. It's not even the tr- traditional cable media. It's 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 you know, people who have blogs, it's Twitter accounts, social media has played such an important role in this. Um, The the short answer is that I I think we are not always going to be proud of how we, the media, capital M, um, handle this election. Donald Trump was a fixture of media. He got a lot of free media. Um, He was able in some ways to, and he admits this himself, and some people in the media have already admitted this themselves also, um, has been able to manipulate the news cycle in some way by running a very non-traditional campaign. This is, again, a news cycle that's moving so fast, so there's more, uh, there's not as much time for analysis. You know, the fact that we don't know much about his economic policy, about his foreign policy, about his doctrine, that's a reflection of him as a candidate, but I can't help but sense that that's also a reflection of us also. Yeah. You know, that, that why, you know, you can, people say we've asked the question, but we just haven't received answers. You know, it's... It's unusual in every, every possible way. If you were to interview Donald Trump during this next hundred or so days left, what question would Michelle Norris ask the great Donald Trump? I have a simple question. And I I literally ask this all the time of people when they want to take on a big job. And is there a bigger job than being president of the United States? Why do you want to do it? You know, I want to make America great again. I just said want to make. It's, it's, It's not great. And I want to make it great. Maybe that would be the answer. Yeah. But I actually think America's pretty great. And one of the things that we have to admit, that as crazy as the cycle is, it is a dividend of democracy that someone could come in out of almost nowhere yeah. and garner enough votes to take over a convention that may feel really uncomfortable to a lot of people. But it is what, you know, that's the way the table is set in a democratic system. Every time I get the opportunity to talk to you, Michelle Norris, I'm always sad because I know it has to end. Thank you so much for joining us on the Aspen uh, Ideas to Go podcast. And uh, follow Michelle on Twitter at Michelle underscore Norris. Get her books, watch her interviews, and follow everywhere she goes. I am at Pete Dominic. Listen to me at SiriusXM's Stand Up with Pete Dominic. Thank you so much, Michelle, for doing this. Love talking to you. All right. That's our podcast takeover host and Aspen Ideas Festival presenter, Pete Dominic. He's a stand-up comedian and hosts Stand Up with Pete Dominic on Sirius XM. You heard his discussions with other festival presenters on the ground at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to Go on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin, Eliza Costas, and myself with music by Gillicuddy and Poddington Bear. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thank you for listening.